We're in Genesis, actually chapters 12 all the way to 25. It's going to take a while. (laughs) But um, there's quite a difference between preaching the Old Testament narratives and preaching through uh, hortatory scripture such as Ephesians or some of the epistles. And when you're preaching the narratives, it is actually a story. <laughs> and so you're not diving down into word meanings and, you know, the way the sentence is actually put together. It's, it's broader. It's, there's something to be learned here. And, you know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he was warning that disorderly church that even Israel, the apple of God's eye, did by their bad behavior, they displeased God. And Israel was laid low in the wilderness because of that behavior. There are consequences to sin. It's right at that juncture that he said to them, now these things, referring to God's chastening of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, happened as examples for us. So that, and that's a purpose clause, this is the reason that they happen, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And the point being there that there's a lot in the Old Testament that we as believers under the new covenant, which is in his blood, we're partakers of the new covenant, not in fullness, because the new covenant was promised to Israel, but we are partakers as those that have been grafted in, of the new covenant, that we can learn from the Old Testament. We're not under the law. We're not under the old covenant. But there are so many examples from the Old Testament that we might learn from it if our hearts are open to it. I appreciate that song, Ancient Words. I love that song. I was ready to get up and preach right after it. But we had some more things to do there. So in Genesis chapters 12 through 25, I don't want us to lose sight of where we are in history considering the massive transition that exists between chapters 11 and 12 of Genesis. In chapters 1 through 11, the narrative focuses on the universe and all the inhabitants of the world. We start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes on from there. But in Genesis chapter 12, somewhat abruptly, he narrows a panorama from all humanity to one man and his descendants. Such a transition is momentous, actually. God began with one family, Adam and Eve, it's true, but that account rapidly moved through the generations all the way to the flood where God began all over again with another man and his family, Noah. And it's kind of like this repeated cycle that takes place. God blesses graciously mankind, mankind obstinately rebels against God and God punishes and then opens the door for blessing again. Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were that new start, but in a few few generations, what happened? The Tower of Babel happened. And civilization refused to honor God as their creator once again. But in Genesis chapter 12, there's a new beginning again, post-Tower of Babel. 
And this time, God's sovereign choice is of one man, Abraham, and his family, and it becomes clear that God intends for the entire world to have a right relationship with him, not just Israel, okay, not just Israel. He says, all the families of the earth will be blessed in and through you, Abraham. God's eye is on the redemption of humanity. It's broad. The families of the earth... And it all began with Abraham, God's covenant with him and his descendants, the nation of Israel. I mentioned in my prayer that they were the oracles of God. They they were the, the safe keepers of the words of God, the Old Testament that we refer to the Old Testament. And never forget it is through Israel that Messiah will come. And so God's doing something, and and in Genesis chapter 12, we're seeing this laid out through the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ is a savior of the world. And if this is not a meta-narrative, when you look at the Abrahamic covenant and trace it all the way through to Revelation, it's really the carrying out of the Abrahamic covenant is what we see. It's a meta-narrative, or there isn't such a thing. It's God's story, or his story, history, in its truest sense. And so we study the Old Testament history, and we learn from it. Now, last week, we were introduced to Father Abraham by looking at his conversion, right? Look at verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 24 and following. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. That was Abraham's father. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. So you see the connection there. Lot is uh, Abraham's nephew. But Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, Ur of the Chaldeans. Now Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Sarah was barren, and she had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his sons, Abram's wife. And they all went together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You notice that the life expectancy is less than, say, Methuselah, 900 plus years, right? The, the effects of sin are having a bearing on man. And then beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is kind of a summary and Verses uh, 24 in chapter 11, all the way to the end of chapter 11, were giving you backfill to what is stated. 
in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12. God does that often in the scriptures. It's a precursor to the Abrahamic covenant. And it explains God's call on Abraham's conversion as he obediently responded to it with a delay in Haran, it's true. He waited in Terah passed, and then Abraham obeyed God's call to leave his country, to leave his relatives. And incidentally, Ur to Haran was 600 miles. They didn't have bullet trains back then. They didn't even have cars back then. They walked, and he had herds, and he had servants with him. 600 miles. And he was to leave his relatives in his father's house, but we discovered he took his father with him. How's that work? And Sarah and his wife and Lot, his nephew. But after Terah passed, because he died in Haran, Abraham completed his obedience to God's call. And there's a clear picture of his belief in God's word in the fact that he did continue that trip in obedience. We also looked at God's covenant with Abraham. We learned that it contained three main points. This is just by way of review. I don't want you to lose the thread here. He promised a land, which was the land of Canaan. You can see that in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a land. He also promised a nation, descendants like the dust of the earth. Again, Genesis 15, 16 and 17, 6, where God restates that covenant to him and says, you're going to have so many descendants, they're like the stars of heaven or the dust on the earth. It's interesting, isn't it, that he promised him a nation because contained in this unconditional promise is a promise of blessing. He said, I will bless those who bless you. Now, this promise is still active. And a nation's attitude and behavior toward Israel is still indicative of God's blessing or lack of blessing on a nation. America, as a nation, has always held the welfare of Israel as a core value. And that's seen in the fact that our nation is based upon Judeo-Christian values. Now, we're moving fast away from that base, but originally we were based on Judeo-Christian values, as is Western culture. The potency of these core American values, which are defined as Judeo-Christian values in the United States, which used to be the most religious Western democracy, is reflected in the fact that 69% of American public views Israel favorably. 69%. This was a survey taken in 2019. As opposed to 21% that view Palestine and Palestinians favorably. That's a Gallup poll, 2019. Now, although many in the elite government and media don't hold to that sentiment, and you see that everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, they hold just the opposite, right? But the truth of the matter is, as a nation, we have historically embraced Israel, and we've blessed Israel. And I believe that we've been blessed in return, just as God's word has said. So he promised a land, he promised a nation, and thirdly, he promised a seed. Now, seed, singular, who would be the blessing for the families of the earth. That's Messiah. And this covenant with Abraham was unconditional. Remember we talked about that? 
that in the Bible there are two types of covenant. There's conditional and unconditional. Conditional or bilateral covenant is an agreement that's binding on both parties for its fulfillment. Both parties agree to fulfill certain conditions and then that agreement is made and they keep it. If either party fails to meet their responsibility, the covenant's broken and neither party must fulfill the expectations of the covenant. But there is an unconditional or a unilateral covenant and that's an agreement between two parties but only one of the parties must do something. Nothing's required of the other party. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is. And I shared with you that obscure Middle Eastern uh, ritual, if you will, of cutting a covenant. You ever hear of, hey, he cut a deal with a guy for a car, right? That's where this comes from. They would cut animals in half and lay them one part here and one part there. And then those that were making the covenant would walk through those animals that were on either side of them, and by virtue of their shed blood, it was a blood covenant that they would keep. But we read in, I believe it's 15, chapter 15, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, that Abraham was in a deep sleep. God put him in a deep sleep, and through the symbolism of a a burning uh, lantern and uh, a torch, walked through the two separated animals and that was God indicative of God doing it by himself it was only God it was definitely an unconditional covenant that God made Abraham was sleeping Yahweh alone would fulfill this covenant and the Lord's covenant with Abraham was a fountain from which flowed all of his redemptive purposes for Israel and for mankind as a whole In a real sense, the remainder of the biblical account, all the way from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation, is an outworking of the covenant promises to the patriarch. Even Gentile believers are included, at least in a spiritual sense, and I read about that in Romans 10. We're kind of odd because we're not Jewish, but we have been grafted in, okay? It's the church age, it's the age of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. We're part of that promise to all the nations of the world being blessed. So this goes on. Look at Galatians 3.29 real quick with me and just to kind of bolster what I'm saying, it's always good to have scripture behind the things that you say so it's not just your opinion. Galatians 3.29 kind of clarifies for us what I'm talking about. So um, let's start at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now you remember that Galatians is written against Judaizers that were Jews that came to this area and they were trying to get uh, believers to uh, practice circumcision so that they could be, you know, in the fold. And Paul went there and just really... uh, chastised Peter because Peter is thrown in with them for a little bit. He got deceived. But that's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 27, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now get this, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to what? The promise. Isn't that amazing? You see, all the way into the New Testament, we have it, that Abraham's promise is still active and we're participants of it. This is amazing. So I just wanted to get that out to you before we uh, went any further. And I want to talk now about Abraham's compromise. (laughs) I know it's just kind of like the last point in your outline. I could go on for weeks with Abraham's compromise And I'm going to do it in just one Sunday. There are other compromises that we'll be talking about with Abraham because God does not withhold when he gives us the truth about his Bible characters here. It presents its heroes with all the warts and all. Abraham, the only man referred to in all the Bible as a friend of God, didn't always live up to that title. And we see this right from the very beginning. Although God's call was clear for him to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house, Abraham's faith was initially weak, wasn't it? He left his father's house, but he took his father with him. And so we see that his faith was weak, and he got hung up in Haran for a time until his father, Terah, passed away. And we said last week that his father, Terah, the name means delay. And it was true to his name. There was a delay in Abraham's journey of faith. Initially, Abraham's faith is seen to produce only partial obedience, but he went on then and completed that obedience once Terah died. Well, as we look into this chapter, I want to just pray for us that our hearts would be open to receive this because it's about compromise and and. Abraham was one of God's people, and I'm talking to many of God's people here, and I want you to understand that you as a believer can compromise, and there's something to be learned through Abraham's experience here. So I want God to just open your hearts to hear what he has to say today. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the life of Abraham, the father of faith, the friend of God, we are reminded that he truly did not always live up to his title. Um, He had a number of epic fails as he lived out his faith in you because he is a sinner, just as we all are sinners. And though we be your children by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, there are times where we fail you, where our behavior displeases you, where we compromise what we know to be true. And Father, we want to learn from Abraham's experience today what to do in a situation like that and maybe how to prepare not to compromise, Lord. When does compromise come knocking at our door? Oh, Father, open the eyes of our heart. Let us receive the good things from your word that you have prepared for us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd just like to read a little bit for you, beginning in verse 4. So Abraham, this is chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we don't know how long he was in Haran. Some people say five years. I I just don't think it's very, very clear in the scripture. But he departed from Haran. He was 75 years old. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions, 
which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land. (laughs) This is such good stuff, people. So he goes all the way from from Haran to Shechem. That's another 400 miles. So we got this guy going from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, 600 miles, and then he completes his obedience and goes into the land that God showed him, the land of Canaan, and he ends up in Shechem, and that was another 400 miles. And there Yahweh appeared to him. And Shechem means shoulder because it was a pass in between two famous mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they play into the scriptures more. I'm not going to comment on that because we'd never get out of here if I did. So another 400 miles. And there Yahweh again appeared to Abraham and reminded him of his covenant, saying, to your seed I will give this land. Let's look at verse, um, continue on in verse Six, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, to your descendants I will give this land. And so Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This altar building plays a real big part in Abraham's journey of faith. You see, When he built that altar, that signified his faith and trust in God. And don't don't forget that at the end of that verse, verse 6, I believe it is, it says, now the Canaanite was in the land. That's an enemy. That's an enemy of Israel. That's an enemy of Abraham. Abraham was on the other side of the Canaanites as God's chosen vessel. And even in the midst of enemies... Abraham drives a stake in and he builds this altar. And that was an amazing statement of his faith. It's at times like this that the child of God must remain alert though. Because from Shechem, we read in verse 8, he then proceeded there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And he pitched his tent there with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. So now he's in Bethel, the house of God, and he's calling upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord is very important. It's it's talking about proclaiming Yahweh. It's not just a private prayer in his closet. He's building an altar out there for everybody to see that he is Yahweh's man, if you will. Just as Abraham's faith was settling in, as he was in the house of God building an altar and worshiping Yahweh, something happened. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. A famine hit him in the land that God had promised him. And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
Remember I said that just as his faith was settling, just as he was in the house of God, just as he was proclaiming, calling on the name of God, something came up to distract him from that sweet fellowship. A famine hit. And Abram's reaction epitomized the concept of two steps forward. Shechem and Bethel, where he made altars and built altars, and then one step back. Now he runs down into Egypt. Because when the famine hit, it was a sudden and a severe test of Abram's faith. Would he build an altar and seek God's face? What would he do? Well, in Genesis 12, 10, all the way to 13, 4, it continues Abram's journey of faith. And as we look at this period of Abraham's life, I want to give you some words that you can hang on to like little handles. How about famine, fear, folly, and fullness? Okay? That'll get us through this section of scripture. The famine hit. We might think of this as only affecting Abram, and he's thinking, man, I'm hungry. What am I going to do? There's no food in the land left. I'm going down where there's food, down in Egypt. But you remember that Abram was very, very rich. And he had the responsibility of not only Sarah, his wife, but Lot, his nephew, and all the people and all the cattle and everything that he had accumulated in Haran and in his travels. And so he was responsible for everyone. He was faced with only two choices when that famine hit. And it's the same when we face any kind of testing in our lives as believers. Would he trust God or would he trust himself? To trust God, he should have built an altar and sought God's faith in the situation. What should I do, God? He should have stayed put, built an altar. That would have signified his trust in God. But we don't read anything about an altar. He trusted himself. He packed up everything and everyone, and he fled to Egypt where there is still food and grain for his livestock. Sadly, Abraham's faith faltered. It faltered. This is the friend of God's faith, faltering. He didn't turn to God to trust him with his difficulty, but instead he defaulted to his own reason. Rather than trusting God, he thought things through and decided, I know what to do. I got this. I I don't know if that ever happens to you. You're probably different than me. He leaned on his own understanding and did not acknowledge God. There was no altar built. So that famine hit, and what it caused was fear, our second handle to hold on to. Verses 11 and 12. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See, now I know that you are a beautiful woman. Okay, now I'm telling you, she was 70 years old already. Okay? Because he's 75. She was 70. I know you're a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, you're going to knock them out. This is his wife. They'll say, this is his wife, and they're going to kill me but they will let you live because they're going to take you into the harem. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Wow. Faced with difficult situation, Abram turned to himself and he applied all the life experience he had gained in 75 years and he charted his course of action. Egypt was where the food was, that's true. Egypt seemed a logical place to go, but by this time, Abraham did not build an altar. And he didn't even consider God, he merely trusted his own assessment of the situation. 
His great plan was to get Sarah to lie for him. Now, if any of you have studied this passage before, you know that it was kind of like a part lie. Okay? He says, say you are a sister, which was a half-truth, because they both had the same father, but a different mother. Don't ask me to explain this. Okay. <laughs> this is early on. And ancient Middle Eastern law made him as her brother, if he claimed to be her brother, the law, the Middle Eastern law that all these tribes, even in Canaan, would, would follow is that her brother was the guardian of her, not her husband. Don't ask me to explain that. They can kill the husband and take the wife, but they can't kill the brother and take the wife. Okay? And as her husband, he could have been killed, and she could have been taken into the harem, but not as her brother. As her brother and guardian, anyone wanting to take her would have to go through Abraham, and they would also give him gifts and try to sweeten the whole situation out so that he says, hey, you can have her. She's my sister. Go ahead and take her. And so he's, he's making money off his wife, who he told to lie. The friend of God. <laughs> Yikes. F.B. Meyer, who is a commentator that I often like to read about these things when he's talking about characters in the Bible, he said this, in figurative language of scripture, Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Abraham looked at his difficulties and became paralyzed with fear, and without taking counsel of his heavenly protector, he went down to Egypt. Many still make the same mistake today, Meyer says. And they may be true children of God, and yet in a moment of crisis, they will adopt methods of delivering themselves. That sow seeds of sorrow and disaster, only to save themselves from their predicament. And that's exactly what he did. That fear drove him. And fear often drives people to lie, or to tell half-truths, or to shade the better part. And not be fully honest. Well, then we look from famine to fear to folly. The folly of going to Egypt. Verses 14 through 16, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. I just can't imagine. I want to see Sarah in heaven. I mean, can you imagine this? They saw that she was very beautiful. And incidentally, I'm going to jump way ahead. He did this again. Later on in his life, he did it again with King Abimelech, or Abimelech is the name, like Pharaoh. Another leader, he says, tell him, you're my sister. He did it again. She still must have been a knockout. I don't know how old she was then. Getting up into her late 80s and 90s, I think. And she's still beautiful. Can't, I can't shake that out of my mind. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for his sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Abram was making out on this thing. And his wife has been taken into the king's court, if you will. This is amazing. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah used Egypt to symbolize the nation's faithlessness in response to an invasion crisis. 
And this is what he had to say in Isaiah 31.1. What sorrow awaits those who look to Egypt for help? I might paraphrase that. What sorrow awaits believers who look to the world for help or look to themselves for help? Trusting their horses and their chariots, trusting their bank accounts and their job security, and charioteers and depending on the strength of human armies instead of, contrastive, looking to the Lord, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. It's two choices. You depend upon God or you depend upon yourself or the world. Now, I read one man's assessment of this account where he said this, it it comes upon us out of the blue, these crises. Often when we're doing really, really well, a distraction comes, a temptation. You may be experiencing great fellowship, this man says, fellowship with God, times of prayer, meditation, when suddenly some circumstance beyond your control makes it difficult to maintain that fellowship. It may be a work situation. It could be a neighbor situation. Anybody have problems with neighbors? I've heard of them. I've never had any problems with neighbors. Or a mother-in-law situation. I can honestly say I never had a mother-in-law situation. Mary's mom was wonderful. She was like a sister. So I don't know what that's like. It will always be some tough circumstance that makes it difficult to maintain fellowship with Christ or enjoy that that peace that you were enjoying. It could be a bitter disappointment crushing you, so you can hardly find strength to pray and fellowship. All your mind is taken up with your circumstance. It, it may be misunderstood motives. You meant to do something good and someone took it for wrong. In short, it's any temptation that seems more than you can bear. It's overwhelming. And your focus is more on your circumstances than on the God who is your Savior. And it's right at that point that you need to bow down low, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and remember this truth from God's word. God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. You are not overwhelmed by your circumstance, no matter what it is. He will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. We don't have any excuses. He just kicked out all the excuses that we could possibly have. There's nothing that can overcome us. There are things that do overcome us because we succumb to them. We agree with them. We fail to look to God. But Abraham, the friend of God, he didn't remember that God was faithful. I don't know, maybe he was having a struggle that he didn't have any children yet. Because he didn't. But that's not what he did when he faced that famine. He followed the folly of going down into Egypt. But I want to tell you the end of the story because that's really good stuff. Look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter. But the Lord... That's so beautiful. But God. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was 
Or why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Get out of here. Now when it says he took her for his wife, that does not mean that they had relations. She was in preparation to become part of his harem. That's what it was. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him, uh, escorted him away, and his wife and all that belonged with him. So all the goodies that he got, he took with him, and he left, and God rescued him. So just like I gave you a couple of handle words to hold on to, I want to give them to you again. There's three of them. Nope, there's four. Nope, there's three. Because it, it, it's... It reminded me of the three R's of education, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? I got three R's for spiritual development. Rescue, return, and rejoice. Rescue, return, and rejoice. But God, God came in and rescued Abram when he had really, really had an epic fail. When Abram failed to protect Sarah, God did. Now, Sarah was to be the vessel through which Abram's seed, Messiah, would come. It's not about Sarah and how beautiful she was that God protected her. It's not about Abram and how special he was that God protected her. God had a plan for redemption. Abraham and Sarah were part of that plan, and Sarah was a vessel through which Messiah would come. God was not going to let Abram's lapse of faith endanger his plan for for redemption. And so Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with a great plague. I love that phrase that there's a word in front of plague there. It says great. He got their attention. And being superstitious as those pagan cultures would be, immediately thought, what's different about the situation here? Oh, Abram, this guy that came to sojourn with us, and his wife that I've taken in, he's different. It's got to be related to him. And then he found out that Sarah was his wife and not his sister or just his sister. He immediately associated that great plague with Abram and he called him. He said, take her and get out. Now don't forget Abram had gained many sheep, oxen, donkey, male and female servants, donkeys and camels. As an aside, can I just say something to you interesting? One of the female servants that he picked up was a young girl named Hagar. More on her later, right? I'll tell you what, you cannot compromise and not have ongoing consequences. You cannot sin, and you may be forgiven, but there are still consequences to that sin because God is God. God sovereignly, by his own design, rescued Abraham from his terrible decision and Sarah from Pharaoh. And all the while, he was blessing Abram in spite of that poor decision. What amazing grace. What incredible grace. The return, I said rescue, return, and rejoice. Well, the return, this is the second R in the walk of the believer. In Genesis 13, 1 through 4, look what it says. So Abram went up from Egypt after he got kicked out of Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. And now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. 
This is foreshadowing for what's coming at the latter part of chapter 13, where him and Lot have to separate because they were so rich, there wasn't enough land for their cattle and their, their uh, livestock to graze. He is rich in, in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel. Oh, Bethel, the house of God. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Oh, I love this. So once God had gotten a hold of Abraham's heart again, Abraham responded in faith. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 lays out God's way of return. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that exactly what happened with Abram? God tapped him on the shoulder by causing a great plague to fall upon Pharaoh and his court. And God got Abram's attention, and Pharaoh kicked him out, said, take your wife, go. And what did Abram do? He went back to where he began. He was abundantly pardoned. He left Egypt. God's children are not allowed to make a terrible decision that completely ignores him and his power and then remain in that position. Look at what Adam and Eve did. They ate and they should not have eaten and he sent them away. He put them out of the garden as a severe mercy that they might not live forever in that separated state. And he did the same here. He didn't allow him to remain in Egypt. It's imperative that the believer return. And that always means turning away from whatever they have gotten themselves into and returning to God. You see, in a word, it means to repent. And repentance is more than just feeling sorry about what you've done. And although it includes sorrow, Repentance is more than feelings and emotion. Repentance is more than just talk. Talk is cheap. Repentance means intentional and discernible action, movement. He left Egypt and went back to where he started. When he went off the path, when he began to lean on his own understanding. Movement away from sin and movement toward God. Abram had to leave Egypt. He repented. An alcoholic doesn't merely modify their drinking, <laughs> right? They stop drinking. An adulterer does not merely cry when they're caught. If they truly repent, there's no more adultery. A liar doesn't work at lying less. Well, I'm working on it. I've only lied 15 times today. That's not repentance. The biblical response where sin is involved and exposed is repentance. It is a break with the old and an initiation of the new. Putting off the old and putting on the new. And Abraham is a wonderful example of this in Genesis 13, 1 through 4. My mom used to always say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, Stephen. 
That's before I was saved, okay? Intentions are fine, but what are you going to do about them? So rejoicing. There's rescuing by God, supernatural work of grace. And hasn't he done that in each of our lives if we're believers? It's his grace, not ours. It's all of grace. And then there's a return. We've repented. We've turned away from that old life. We have begun walking in a new way. We're walking in faith now. And here comes the rejoicing. Abraham repented. He learned his lesson. And at least this lesson at this time in his journey of faith, there are more that he's going to be learning. They're all instructive to us. And what did Abraham do after his epic fall? Well, he returned to where it all began. He went back to the beginning, right to where he uh, faltered. He went on his journey from Negev as far as Bethel. And then he built an altar. And Abraham called on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord is to invoke his proper name in audible and social prayer and praise. It's not just a quiet, I love you, Lord. Amongst yourself. It's letting everybody... He's in the house of God again. Okay? It's like a sinner that has an epic fail and he kind of separates himself from other believers because he's embarrassed. And frankly, many times he just wants to continue to sin. And so he stays away from people. And then finally God gets a hold of his heart. The first thing that person should do is come back to church and tell everybody, I've repented, man, because that's security. You have just enlisted the entire church to watch you, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. And it's safe. It's safe. And that's what he did. He called on the name of the Lord. To call on him is to approach him with thanksgiving and worship and petition. And in so doing, proclaim the name of God. He was spreading the name of Yahweh again. The call on the name of the Lord is to pray in a more public and, and a solemn manner. How fitting that Abram was in Bethel when he called on the name of Yahweh. The Bible teaches us that all those who call upon the name of the Lord are identified as believers. 1 Corinthians 1-2, interesting. It says this, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart, and called to be holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all who are believers call on the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is one of the marks of the true child of God. And participating in church and in a local fellowship of believers is a way to call on the name of the Lord. Letting your people at work know that you are going to church on Sunday or you heard a great sermon on Sunday because you are a Christian is calling on the name of the Lord, letting the people know at your school, in your neighborhood, your neighbors, that you are a believer in Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I know we're on the wrong side of history. So what? Get used to it. We've had a great run in America. Time to stand up and be counted. And you'll be amazed at the adventure that you can live with God. You see, to call upon the name of the Lord is an outward sign of knowing him and a way of connecting with him. And there's a difference between knowing about God, and many of our friends and neighbors know about God, but they don't know him personally, but you do. 
Calling on the name of the Lord indicates personal interaction and relationship. And when we call upon the name of the Lord as a form of worship, we recognize our dependence upon him. Because we're calling on the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord means all of his characteristics, everything that's wrapped up in Yahweh. That's exactly what Abram did not do, remember? (laughs) When the famine came, instead, he distrusted himself and he compromised. So yes, God rescued Abram and Sarah. And yes, Abram became even more wealthy through the debacle. And yes, he went back to Bethel and he worshiped God. But there are consequences, as I mentioned before. Listen and just think with me through some of the consequences of Abram's compromise. His behavior had to have influenced Sarah, his wife. My goodness, what did Sarah think about him? I would not want to be in those discussions. Number two, he lost his testimony as Pharaoh and the Egyptians. What could he tell them about Yahweh? Right? He lied to them. They caught him in a lie and they kicked him out. Number three, once a sin is committed, it's easier to commit again. Abraham did the same thing years later with King Abimelech in Genesis 20. The exact same thing. So once you have committed a sin, be on your guard because it's far easier to recommit that same sin. Number four, he unwittingly influenced his own son Isaac to commit the same sin. In Genesis 20, Isaac, facing another famine, living in Gerar, lied to the pagan king about Rebekah, who is beautiful because he feared for his life. So it trickled down to his own son. I'm sure he did not intend that. And some even have supposed that Abraham's example by going down into Egypt and gaining wealth and everything, even though he lied, influenced Lot in his decision to choose to move his tent toward Sodom. The best part. I don't know about that. That's a assumption on some people's parts, but I've read about that. And in the face of Abraham's sin, his epic fail, once he realized it, confessed it, and repented, God abundantly pardoned him. But there were ramifications, right? Where sin increased, grace did abound all the more. God's forgiveness is an open display of his love. We read in Romans that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a very sad poem from which a saying has been pulled, and it's full of emotion, and sadly it's often believed by children of God when they're in their epic fail, when they've sinned grievously. They hear this this phrase over and over again in their mind. It echoes from this poem. The last part of the poem groans with this angst of lost possibilities. Listen to it. Only memories remain of a lifetime lived so long ago. People that you have once known but do not know you anymore. Wave and smile blankly at you in the street. The pain, a lingering lump in the throat, choking down tears left unshed. Sorrow bubbles up from deep inside. And you move on for everything changes and you can never go home again. You can never go home again. That, that's, a, that's a refrain that people that are in sin hear from the devil all the time. You can't go back. You can't go back. It'll never be the way it was. Hogwash, that's not true. <laughs> not with God. You have but God. 
and he will abundantly forgive and pardon. Might be true with men who don't know the Lord. You can't go home again. But it's not true for the child of God. You can always forsake your sin and return. You can go back to where you left him behind, to Bethel, if you will, the house of God. And you can once again call upon the name of God, your Savior, because he is there. And he is evil, uh, excuse me, he is able. He is able. And even more importantly, he's willing to forgive us. And he wants you to return. And he will restore you completely and abundantly pardon you. And you will then once again rejoice as you once did. Because you'll be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and you'll have love and joy, and peace reigning in your heart again. It's possible, people. And I know I'm talking to some right now. I don't know who. I surely don't fashion my sermons for a person, God forbid. But if I'm talking to you, or if God's talking to you through me today, listen, you can repent and return. Truly, then, we can agree with Paul, can't we? You see, you can go home again if you're willing. The thing is, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to suffer the humiliation of the fact that you're a sinner? (laughs) As though you ever were anything different. Paul said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And isn't that what we need? We need hope. I mean, things are bleak. You think of that poem. I didn't read the whole poem because you'd be just depressed. It's a terrible poem. That poem is terrible. It's by Lord Merlin. And it's just, it's without hope. He obviously does not know God. So Abraham's growing in his faith, isn't he? He, He's had this failure. He kind of blew it in Haran. Then he recouped from that, and he made it all the way to Shechem, and then to Bethel, and he's doing just great, and bam, the famine hits, and he blows and goes down to Egypt, gets his wife to lie. Then he repents from that and comes back, and things are just rolling along for him. Well, kind of. He's learning how important it is to depend on Yahweh for everything, and God's promise to Abraham was clear. Yet he is still childless. He hadn't had that child yet. That would be the signification of the many children that he's had as, as he is going to have, as, as many as the dust and as many as the stars. And none of that's taking place yet. 25 years he waited for that. You see, God's promise to Abraham was clear, even though he wasn't experiencing it yet. They're kind of like us, isn't it? We're promised that we're going to go to heaven based on our faith in Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. Can we live like that? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, if we're living differently, it's not the right way to be living. You see, there's still a whole lot more in Abram's journey. We're going to talk about him and Lot next week. We're going to talk about him and his faith that was counted to him for righteousness because next Sunday is going to be Reformation Sunday. So we've got to Get something in there on the Reformation. Faith alone, right? Crafty. We can craft these things together. But you come back next week 
And if there's anybody that wants to talk to an elder or myself, return. You can do that. You can go back home again. And God was with open arms and received him back. So rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for Abraham's example of one who blew it, blew it terribly. Yes, there were consequences, but there was also abundant pardon. And in the end, he is called the friend of God. Oh, Lord, would it be so of us that we could be called your friend? In Jesus' name, amen.